you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Well, welcome to the next episode of Bare Naked Money, where all things naked and money are discussed. And uh, you got Josh and Colin with you here this time around. And we're going to go for a little bit of a walk because I personally have had a lot of people in my office who are really sure about things over the last little while. And it's caused me to reflect over my 30 year career, about all the different times that people have been sure about things and how that's turned out. And you know, the, the good ones, everybody remembers some of the bad outcomes. So I thought we'd go back and take a look at some of the times that a lot of people were really sure about things. And I'm sure people on this call have been sure about some of these things and how it's played out. So, you know, one of the companies we'll be discussing is the Nortel saga, because that is one that is very big and many people should remember. If not, we will remind you that you take these things. Then we'll also go off to a few other examples just by way of explaining, you know, why we're maybe not as sure about things as some of the people around us. So Josh, were you, were you born when Nortel was a thing? <laughs> This is going to be a fascinating conversation for me because it definitely wasn't part of my career, the whole Nortel saga, but I was just starting to get a little bit interested in investing at the time when, not when Nortel was going up, but when it was coming down. And I used to look at the ticker on CP24 every day, which is like the local news channel. And I used to look at it every day and I saw this Nortel thing go from 120 to 110 to 100 to 90 to 80. And I was like, dad, what's going on with this Nortel company? <laughs> is it a, should I buy it? But it, yeah, fast, fascinating story. And I think a lot of lessons to be learned from it. Well, exactly. So again, we've got people, and again, there's all kinds of commonly held beliefs out there, whether it's with regards to the Canadian banks, or you work for a specific company and you own shares in that company. And we have this, this outsized confidence. Things are always good and always going to be good. And we're just trying to maybe remind people that there's been a few times in the past where you felt this way and things weren't as, didn't turn out as good. And this is not by way of saying any of the ideas being discussed now are bad. Like again, a Canadian bank investment, our position is that's not bad. It's just maybe not to be all and end all. Uh, and if you're working for a company, that may be a good company, but you know, it may not be a good company forever. And so these are designed to maybe help people put things in more perspective and, you know, consider the risk aspect of what they're doing a little better. So Josh, I'll go back even further than Nortel. Like, and then this is probably way predates you because again, back in the day when you know, we didn't have the internet, we listened to investment presentations and people would talk about things. And there's a company. That was called Radio Shack. And for a while, over 85% of the population in North America lived within like 10 minutes of a Radio Shack. And they were just a wonderful investment because it was consumer electronics and they had such a deep market penetration and a network that nobody else could ever hope to catch up to. And they were going to be a great investment for the long term because they were going to be able to morph their shelf and they'd be able to add things as, as technology changed. But nobody could ever assail their access to the population. That was the investment thesis. Do you remember Radio Shack, Josh? Yeah, I got a remote control monster truck from Monster from Radio Shack. I think I must have been, I don't know, six, seven, something like that. So <laughs> yeah. do I remember it? Yes. Do I remember it as an investment? No, I do not. 
Yeah. Well, then there was a meme that came out not that long ago that actually there was a Radio Shack flyer and literally everything in the flyer was now contained on your cell phone. Like there was, there was no functionality on anything that they had in this entire flyer that you could not do with a current cell phone. So maybe I've gone back too far. Maybe not everybody's going to remember Radio Shack, but I don't even think they're around today. Well, when you mentioned how many stores they had and how everybody was in proximity, it made me think of Blockbuster. Another great story. Actually, Blockbuster existed from 1985 till all well, 2000. There's still one Blockbuster going, I hear, because I watched the documentary on it. But I think this is as a, a chain, they ceased in 2010. And my brother-in-law actually ran a Blockbuster for a lot of years. And boy, I tell you, if you worked at a Blockbuster, you were cool. And everybody wanted to know you. And, and that, that was a big deal, too. So why don't you give me a bit of the Nortel story as you saw it? Uh, a first-hand perspective and I'll keep it concise because we don't have all day. I'm sure we could talk all day about this, but I'm interested to know how you experience it. Being somebody in the business, in the industry, from the the point where it was a nothing company to a massive company or massive story to, again, it was a nothing company. Well, I, the history of Nortel, if you actually go back through its pedigree, stretches back into the 1800s because it has roots that go back to some of the first telecommunications equipment that was, was produced. So they were largely seen as kind of utility, like basically the phone company that also had a, a pretty, very seemingly very sexy adaptation of all this new digital stuff. Like they went digital back in 1975. It's like, oh my God, that's so leading edge. So there was this belief, they were treated as if they were, you know, the, the phone company, the utility, they're ubiquitous, they're everywhere, everybody's always going to need them, they're on the cutting edge, they're making all these investments. Everybody was looking at it as, like, it's just always going to be there. And at its peak, it represented 37% of the TSX. Now, Josh, have you ever seen a single company dominate a, a any index in anywhere in the world in all of your vast experience? Have you ever seen that? I haven't. I'm sure there are some examples from some less developed countries at some point along the way, but it is absolutely mind blowing for anybody today, especially like somebody like me that didn't live through that to go back and think that something like that could happen and some, like something that, that made, like that made sense because there are so many massive companies today that just represent a small fraction of the, the stock market they're a part of. And to say that something was, so just to put this in perspective for people, out of all the large publicly traded companies in Canada, Nortel was worth one third or put another way, all of the other companies combined in Canada were worth twice as much as Nortel as a single company. Yeah. And so today, what is the, the percentage of the entire TSX that is the financial industry. Like what's the, what's that? It's, it's right around that level off the top of my head. I don't know the exact amount, but probably between 35 and 40%. Yeah, exactly. So Nortel was basically as, as big as the whole financial industry in Canada at the time. And everybody was okay with that because, well, they were a technology leader well, and it's only going to go up from here. So, so that was going to be one of my questions for you. You say everyone was okay with it. At the time, did people reflect on that and think that this is absolutely insane? Oh, there's always crazy people in the room, but you don't listen to the crazy people because this <laughs> is always going to go up. <laughs> no, the, 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 
the issue with, with Nortel's, it was seen largely by, by much of the investing public that I was dealing with at the time as a utility, like basically they associated, like, this is the phone company, like the, the it's never going to do badly. I mean, it's just so entrenched and these companies are always safe and these guys are even better because they're chasing all this technology. <laughs> One of the stories, this is where I kind of really started to, to doubt what they were up to. Spent a billion dollars buying a plant, I think it was in Switzerland or somewhere. And they, they shut it down and sold it off for scrap, like within 30 days. Like it just, I'm going, holy crap. I mean, that, that kind of decision, that kind of flawed decision-making, you know, there's, there's some, something not going well there. But the interesting thing for me was watching, and this is what I reflect on today when I have somebody in my office talking about how sure they are that a company or an industry thing is absolutely rock solid and is always going to do well. I go back, boy, those are awful familiar conversations. I mean, Nortel's share price peaked at a hundred, was it 124-something? 124.50 in July of 2000. So that was during the tech wreck, right? So one of the reasons that Nortel, I think, you know, gained the position it did was it was kind of a crossover. It was an old company with roots back to the 1800s in telecommunication. And it was doing this technology stuff like, oh my God, like this is going to give me the stability of a utility and I'm going to get all the upside of technology. This is wonderful. So it peaked in, in July of, of, of 2000, but the whole way up, it was like, people were just buy more and got to buy more. It's always going to go up. Oh my God, did you hear what they did? They bought a plant over in Europe. It's like they're expanding there. They've got this technology. Nobody else has. They've got the infrastructure, like 93,000 people work from. And that's the other sad side of the story because the 93,000 people working there had a pension plan that was largely invested. In, in Nortel stock and individual share purchase plans. So everybody was on this gravy train. And it, at a certain point, it, it, it reaches a tipping point where everybody is kind of drinking the Kool-Aid and we all have to believe this because we've all made decisions and if this has to work out, yes. So it, it kind of marched in lockstep with, with the tech wreck, the internet stocks uh, in 2000. But it was, if you walked into somebody and said, no, we should sell off somebody in Nortel stock. Why would I do that? It's my best performing investment. Mm -hmm. Josh, has anybody ever said that to you when you suggested selling something? They say, no, I shouldn't sell that. That's my best performing investment. Yeah. Yeah. Way too often. So I was in the postmortem, I was just reading about it. Apparently they had in their headquarters uh, here in Ontario, they had the stock price just flashing on the wall basically all day, every day, which kind of drives that infatuation and that, that just pure focus on the share price the whole time, right? That you're talking about. But so th this is something I, I, I wanted to ask as well. Are there any situations today when you look out in, in the market and the, the, the scope of different investments that are out there, are there any today that remind you, not to say that this is go they're going to be the next Nortel, but are there any that sort of the stories behind them, they remind you a little bit of, of the Nortel story? Because of the scope and scale that Nortel got to, again, that 37% of the index, I mean, I don't think there's anything else out there that approaches the mania, a universal mania that gripped Canada at the time. I think there's probably stories that are similar, but they're not getting the same kind of walk that this particular story got. For me, the similarity is watching the certainty of how people behaved at the time and watching people behave with certainty now and trying to dissuade them from being so certain. And again, this, 
there was there, there was definitely a place in people's portfolio to hoard in our town. Back when it was doing well and it was the earnings numbers were good and stuff to have some exposure to it. But the true tragedy was that people got so infatuated with it that it became a dominant piece. Like they're holding their portfolio and their portfolio is already 37% Nortel and they go, oh, I'm going to buy some Nortel shares. No, it's just don't. Like you're just, you're overloading it. So I can't give you a really good example of something I say, yeah, this company looks the same because again, it's just an order of magnitude that made it so, so different and, and so tragic and special. Sure. Right. Now you also mentioned the question for me, have you have had anybody come up to you and says, well, why would I sell that? That's my best performing investment. Do you have stories at the time? from clients that didn't sell Nortel for one reason or the other? And what was, what was the common refrain for them back then? Well, it, it was classic when it was on the way up and everybody held it. And it was, you know, it was like, well, I can't sell. It's my best performing investment. So you see it pull back, like it pulled back from 124 down to 120 bucks. It's like, okay, now it's, it looks like it's getting a little bit weak here. So let's, let's sell some. I was like, oh no, I can't sell it. It goes back to 124. Like what? Well, it's obviously it's going to go back there. When it gets back there, then I'll sell some. Like, okay. And then it drops down to 115 and it's like, all right, well, you know, let's, it's getting riskier here. It's like, oh no, I can't sell it at this much of a loss or, and this, most of them wasn't even a loss. It was, they just hadn't gained as much. Right. And I was like, it has to go back to it. Like it, we talked to them at 115. I was like, well, it's, when it goes back to 120, I'll sell some out. Like, what basis are you? Well, it was 120, therefore it will be 120. Therefore I will wait. Like then that was all of the effort that was put into it. And then it keeps going. And every time it dropped, people would, so as soon as it goes back to, I'll get out. And again, it, it's described as the endowment effect. Like once you have something, you know, you value it more than what somebody else will value it at. And you get caught up in that. And if you don't break that cycle, you never find an exit point. And this comes back to what we talked about, having methodology on making these decisions. What's your sell discipline? And if your sell discipline is, as soon as it goes back to this, I'm going to sell it. That's not a sell discipline. That's, that's a sell emotion. And, you know, that's going to cause the problem. So on the way up, it was like, well, like, I'm not going to sell it because it's my best performing investment. Therefore, it's always going to be my best performing investment. And then when it pulled back a little bit, it's like, well, as soon as it goes back to, I'll sell it. And I watched people ride that all the way to zero. Yeah. You know, yeah. after a certain point, they kind of throw their hands up and go, well, it's only 20 bucks a share. I mean, why would I bother selling it? It's like, all right, fine. I give up. <laughs> I hear that a lot too. Yeah. And the shares of Nortel that are littered in some of our clients' accounts still today is a reminder of how dangerous that type of thinking can be. Now, there's one that comes up for me a lot today, especially with some of these, again, technology companies that have run up so much. Banks to some extent as well, because a lot of Canadians hold their, their bank shares very dear, dearly. The tax thing. They don't want to sell their position because it would cost them tax. Did you have any of these questions, oh, scenarios back then? Huge. I have those, I have that conversation all the time. And this is where I really get glib with people. It's like, all right, all right, listen, you got to let me win. If I make you money, it's going to cost you tax. You have to like that. Because the alternative is I lose your money. You won't have to pay any tax, but I've lost your money. So you you need to pick one of those because those are the two outcomes of working together. And and that's just it. People say, well, I don't want to cash those. I don't want to pay the tax. It's like, 
stop it. That's not an investment decision. I mean, yes, tax planning is a thing and we will, and we do with our clients work on how to trigger taxes in an efficient way over time. But at no point do we ever say, no, we can't sell that because we're going to have to pay tax on it. If it's a bad investment or your portfolio is not set up properly for risk management or properly diversified, that's a If you sit there and, and are paralyzed by not wanting to sell because you're going to pay tax as well, what are you hoping for? Are you hoping that you know, the investment falls so the tax problem goes away? Because it's one of two things. Either you're going to pay the tax or you're going to hold the investment until it crashes and then not have to pay the tax. And I don't think that's a win. Yeah. Or you hold it and it keeps going up and you pay more tax. So these are, it's kind of a no-win situation. You got to let us win some way. Well, it's not the tax tail wagging the dog. The taxes are a thing. Should you minimize them? Yes. Do you want to take, you know, reasonable steps? But it's one of the reasonable steps to dramatically skew your portfolio and suboptimal investments to, for tax planning? No, you lost the plot. The whole idea in investing money is to make money. And if you make money, you're probably going to have to pay a little bit of tax. Yeah. Now you also mentioned the idea that a lot of people that worked at Nortel, they also own shares in Nortel. And this is something that I know drives you crazy is having too much of your personal net worth also tied up in a business that you're working in. Cause that, it, I guess it's not traditional diversification, but diversification in some sense that you don't want all of the financial outcomes in your life tied to the same thing. And you work for Coke, own shares and Pepsi. Like don't just stop it. You know, if you're working for a company, that's a really good company. Your career is going to go really well. Take every nickel they pay you in compensation and get it out. Go put it. There are 38,000 publicly listed securities on the globe. Your company's one of them. Stop it. Like it shouldn't represent 80% or 60% or 20% of your, of your own wealth for any period of time. That's that there's just too many black swan events. I mean, we're going through a global pandemic now, which is completely wiped out share values of some businesses that may never or will never come back. And is that foreseeable? No, it isn't. Just no. The only way to protect yourself against these, these major events or unseen or unexpected events is diversification. But it's availability bias. I understand this company. I listen to what they say. I am proud of this company. Uh, my, everybody around me is plugged into this company. We all think it's going well. All this information is available to me. I'm immersed in it. I'm comfortable with it. I don't understand investing. I don't understand stock markets. I don't understand all when my, my financial guy starts to talk gobbledygook. I don't understand, but I understand my company. Therefore, that's what I invest in. And all the people around me are doing the same thing. So I have a tribe. And we're all going to talk about it. On lunch breaks, we're going to talk about it. We go to barbecue on the weekend, we're going to talk about it. And it's, this is really going to work for me. But it's just taking on unnecessary risk. And again, you guys have examples in Ontario down here. We've got the northern pulp mill shuts down. All of a sudden, the pension's underfunded. What are they going to do with that? You can go through Sears. You can go through Hudson's Bay. You can, all these major companies shutting down and, and the pensions are in trouble, right? So... Again, if you work somewhere and your only retirement asset's a pension and the company fails, your pension is not rock solid. And people have an impression that the government's going to bail out all these pensions. Well, it can't and it won't. And that's not how it works. So you have a great career. You make 35 years. So you get your 70% pension. You think you're, and you participated in the share purchase program. You're set. <laughs> Please don't do that. 
Yeah, it could be a bit of a, a triple whammy, not just a double whammy, a triple whammy. If you have not only your, so your job, you lose your job because the company's going bad. Your ownership of the shares of the company are plummeting the value and then your pension's compromised as well. So this is notwithstanding the employee stock purchase plans that a lot of these companies have. They can be valuable. There's basically free money there if you're contributing and, and purchasing the shares of, of your your company. I think your point, Colin, is that you don't want to have too much of your wealth tied up in this. And if you're able to get some of the free money that they're giving out from owning the shares, awesome. Periodically review that and take some chips off the table when you need to. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, you can put me as 100% in favor of free money and you should take all the free money offered, but just liberate that money as, as quickly as you can. Keep it free. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Keep it free. So I, I got a, a couple great snippets from an article that I was just reading from the Globe written back in 2001. And the first three paragraphs of this article, I just thought were, were so great because they encapsulate what happens so often when you see a former high-flying company come back a bit, come back to earth in terms of its share price. So I'm just going to read you quickly these few words here. The market seems to be in a forgiving mood these days. Nortel Networks Corp, the lightning rod of investor anger over much of the past year, has surged recently. Riding the fresh wave of optimism washing through the shelled-out technology sector. Analysts are starting to stamp strong buy ratings on the stock again, and Nortel's new CEO believes the company has found the bottom now that it has escaped a potential financial crisis. While the stock is trading hands at one-tenth of its height, conservative analysts still think it's expensive, but investors don't seem to be paying them much heed. We've heard this one play out a few times, eh, Colin? Absolutely. And it's the whole, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And when anybody starts to talk to me, being really super confident that something's absolutely going to happen or something's absolutely good investments, we'll see. And again, we're not necessarily calling them bad investments. We're just saying, keep it in its place. Don't get so excited about it that it begins to dump. You can have a little bit of a good investment and you, know, be, you should be happy with that. But you can get to the point where it becomes a bad investment just because how much you put into it or how much you believed in it. So, so that, you know, for me, that's a cautionary tale. I mean, and Nortel wasn't the only one. I mean, there's a lot of names and depends on who you are, where you are, and what your, your, your demographic is and, and, and many like geographically and all the rest of it. But you go through Toys R Us, like Toys R Us was 1948. That was when Toys R Us was launched and it made it till 2017, you know, a dominant player for a long time. I had an online presence. It was going to you know, do all this and boops, look, it went away. You know, the Eaton's, the Sears, the, the Hudson's Bay, all these ones that Canadians have seen come and go. My, I'm pleading with, I'm pleading with the audience. Just remember every time that you're really sure about something, think back to all the times you're really sure about things that aren't around anymore. Yeah, the snippet from that Globe article, the thing that it, it tells me is just because an investment is down doesn't make it a good investment, right? This, this is what a lot of people, I think, some, again, without having a process, you can look at, well, it was 120 before, now it's 60. Well, I should definitely buy it. A piece of math that I heard one time that has always stuck with me is an investment that is down 90% is an investment that was down 80% and then fell by 50% from there. Wow, you speak, you drop math truth. 
Wow. That's that, that one just it just resonates so much because when you think something's down 80%, well, how much lower can it go? Well, somebody that bought it at 90% is thinking, well, yeah, how much lower can it go? But it just fell 50% from where it was 10% ago in some ways. So it's a really important to have that methodology, that process. And something being down, it's not a reason to buy it or to sell it. Something being well, up, it's not a reason to buy it or to sell it. So just stop focusing so much on price and I think we'd be better off for it. Well, no, absolutely. Cause you're right. And I, I, I want to jump on this point and say, yeah, you're right. People say it's down. It must be a good buy. No, stop it. Like you can't, don't say that sentence. It's down. Maybe we could take a closer look at it. All right. Fair enough. Let's take a closer look at it. And again, that's what we do. Like that's one of the things, one of the things we'll screen for internally is if there's something we perceive as being a quality business or a quality whatever, and it's down, hmm. Why is it down? Let, let's explore that a little bit. It's never, uh, oh my God, it's down. We have to buy it. No, it might be down for a reason. It's always darkest before the dawn, or it's always dark just before the light goes out forever. I mean, there's really, some things come to an end. Both true. So I have one more snippet from this Globe article that I want to read to you. And again, I want to, Get your senses. Does this remind you of anything that's a little bit more recent? So a big part of why Nortel was really thriving at the time by the sounds of it in hindsight, anyway, hindsight telling the story is that there was a lot of deregulation in the industry at the time. Mm -hmm. So the, the Globe article says this, deregulated industries always follow the same pattern. Competition spurs capital spending, which creates excess capacity, which guarantees price wars, which kill off the weak and damage the industry, stifling profits and choking off new investment. Sound familiar? Well, those are some really powerful words. That's quite the wordsmith there. But, you know, what you're talking about is kind of the definition of a free market. I mean, if a company has a huge advantage, well, there's going to be a whole lot of people who are trying to erode that. And unless they have some kind of regulatory umbrella protecting them from it. Yeah. Competition's a thing. And competition doesn't have to be direct competition. Like, it, it, you know, there can be replacement technologies or, you know, the, the whole marketplace could veer in one direction or another. But the regulatory thing is probably the most insidious thing to try to understand from an investment perspective, because it's something that can be completely nonsensical. It can be something that derails a fundamental aspect of something that has unintended consequences. And, you know, so yeah, the regulatory environment is, is something that is, it's, I don't, black swan is kind of an exaggeration, but it's kind of a, it's a data point that's going to have the potential to cause some really major issues and very seldom do they make sense and very seldom are they forecastable. And very seldom are they predictable, which is kind of what you need to have for something to be a good investment idea. If there was only a way to protect yourself. Oh, wait, there is. Stay diversified. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be my takeaway from this whole conversation is stay diversified. If you had an investment in Nortel and you were diversified properly, probably is not derailing your long-term financial well-being. If you worked at Nortel and invested your portfolio properly, probably still doing okay today financially. But that lack of diversification can be a killer. And it's, I think when people least expect it to happen, 
that sort of those catastrophic blows up. And what I want them to take away from this is next time you're sure of something, stop for a second, sit down and do a little bit of soul searching about all the other things you've been sure of, and then ask yourself, should I really be this sure now? And if you're honest about that, Hey, I can help. You want to come and sit down and have a conversation. We can go back through history together and talk about some of the things you're probably sure of. And my goal is to make you a little bit less sure of what you think you're sure of today. This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth, Inc. IA Private Wealth, Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth, Inc. operates. We've noticed something. It seems there are a lot of people who would rather try to figure out their lives with an online calculator than air your finances to a human. Stop doing that. You need to talk to someone who can help direct you, tell you where to start with what you've got to make the biggest impact on your future. You can't figure that out at doihaveenoughcash.com, but you can figure it out by chatting with us. Call us. It'll be okay. You'll see. Content of this presentation, including facts, views, opinions, recommendations, descriptions of, or references to products or securities, is not to be used or construed as investment advice, as an offer to sell, or the solicitation of an offer to buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Although we endeavor to ensure its accuracy and completeness, we assume no responsibility for any reliance upon it. This should not be construed to be legal or tax advice, as every client situation is different. This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature, and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.